Welcome to the History of Christianity podcast with Stephen Bedard. Please visit me at historyofchristianitypodcast.com. At the end of each century, I try to do a summary of the Roman emperors for that century, or at least I will for as long as the empire lasts. But Constantine the Great is so important that it's appropriate to do an episode on him now. I've already talked about Constantine somewhat in a few episodes, but I will give a better outline of his life and reign in this episode. At this point, we need to remind ourselves of the complicated ruling structure of the Roman Empire. The empire was divided into the west and the east. Each half of the empire was ruled by a senior emperor known as an Augustus and a junior emperor known as a Caesar. The plan was, if everything went smoothly, that when the Augustus died or retired, that they would be replaced by the Caesar, who would then appoint a new junior emperor. The hope was that this scheme would prevent the succession crises that had so often plagued the empire. On paper, it made sense, and many modern organizations use some form of this succession plan. But would people follow the rules? Constantine was the son of Flavius Valerius Constantius and Helena, and he was born in the late 280s. Constantius was appointed the Caesar of the West in 293 under Maximian. Constantine was sent to the East and was raised in the court of Diocletian, the Augustus of that half of the empire. In 305, the Augusti retired, being replaced by their respective Caesars. Constantine, no doubt, had hoped to become the Caesar for his father in the West, but instead, Flavius Valerius Severus was chosen. However, Constantius did send for his son, and together they traveled to Britain. Constantius died in Britain in 306, having only been in Augustus for a short time. If everything went as planned, Severus would become the new Augustus. But they did not go as planned. The troops proclaimed Constantine as the new Augustus, and this threw the West into a period of civil war. I will cover this more when we have our episode on the Roman emperors. What we need to know is that Constantine, in seeking to consolidate his power, invaded Italy. We'll skip over a number of the battles and go straight to the Battle of Melivian Bridge, which took place in 312. This bridge was an important crossing over the Tiber River. Constantine was facing Maxentius, son of Maximian, who ruled over Italy and North Africa, the parts of the West that Constantine still needed. Maxentius had an army of about twice the size of Constantine. What was about to happen would have both military and religious consequences. We should take a moment to comment on Constantine and religion. The Tetrarchy had been focused on the worship of Jupiter and Hercules. Constantine claimed to have received a vision from Apollo and victory, and Constantine shifted his focus to that of the god Sol Invictus, often identified with Apollo. Keep this vision in the back of your mind as we look what happens next. There are a couple of different accounts. Lactantius wrote, quote, Constantine was directed in a dream to cause the heavenly sign to be delineated on the shields of his soldiers, 
and to proceed to battle. He did as he had been commanded, and he marked on their shields the letter X, with a perpendicular line drawn through it, and turned round thus at the top, being the cipher of Christ. Having this sign, his troops stood to arms. End quote. Eusebius gives a somewhat different account. Quote, he saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun, and bearing the inscription, In hoc signo vinces, translated, In this sign thou shalt conquer. End quote. That sign was the Cairo, the Greek letters that look like the English X and P, and which in Greek are the first two letters of Christ. What did Constantine actually experience, if anything? I'm skeptical, based on his history of having visions of gods that happened to be of political usefulness. Did he actually have a dream? We can't know. What we can know is that Constantine won the battle and Maxentius was defeated. Was this Constantine's conversion to Christianity? That depends on your definition. He claimed it was later on, but he also was not baptized until much later. Did he believe that the Christian God was one God among the Olympian gods or the only God? Was this politically motivated, seeing the growth of Christianity and gambling that this might pay off down the road? We cannot know for sure what was going on in Constantine's mind. Whatever happened on the inside, this did mark a turning point in his reign as an emperor. At this point, Constantine entered Rome and had himself proclaimed liberator. Constantine now ruled all of the West, but what of the East? Licentius was the Augustus of the East, and their relationship was uneasy. There was numerous conflicts after which they seemed to be reconciled. However, that would only last until 324, in which we have the Battle of Adrianople, in which Licentius' army was defeated, and Licentius was bottled up in Byzantium. Byzantium. Keep that city in mind. Licentius was eventually captured and initially spared, but later executed. After the experiment of the Tetrarchy, Constantine was now the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. Diocletian's dream was dead. Now, when we think of the Roman Empire, we naturally think of the city of Rome. That's how it started, the empire spreading out from that important city. But not only had the city of Rome deteriorated, the West in general was less prosperous than the East. It was natural at this time for Constantine to celebrate the reunification of the empire with the choosing of a new capital. After considering a number of options, Constantine chose Byzantium as his capital and called it Nova Roma, New Rome. In 330, the city was dedicated and was renamed again, this time Constantinople. If you're wondering where the city is today, it's the modern city of Istanbul in Turkey. I can't overemphasize the importance of Byzantium or Constantinople for the history of Christianity, but we have plenty of future episodes for that. Now, the reason we're giving Constantine so much time in this episode is because of his importance for the history of Christianity. There are some common myths about Constantine and the church, and I'll try to clear that up. The first is that Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the empire, 
and that he merged the church and state. That is not true. What Constantine did was, as seen in a previous episode, was end the persecution and legalize Christianity with the Edict of Milan in 313. While not making Christianity the official religion, he did support the church in many ways, including exempting clergy from some taxes. He also undertook some important building projects, including the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Constantine's mother, Helena, also became a Christian and was given the resources to track down Christian relics. Some of the sites in Jerusalem that have been identified with events in the life of Jesus were chosen during the time of Helena. In 321, Sunday was made a day of rest for all citizens of the empire. In 323, Christians were forbidden from participating in state sacrifices. That such a law needed to be passed tells us that sacrifices to the old gods were still taking place. Constantine is perhaps best known for calling the First Council of Nicaea in 325. We'll have a separate episode on Nicaea, but we need to look at another one of those myths. This was not Constantine calling the bishops to make them submit to his will. He recognized the theological division that was causing wider problems across the empire, and he needed some kind of solution to bring unity to the church. Another myth is that Constantine used this as an opportunity to determine which books would be included in the Bible. It is true that in 331 he had 50 copies of the Bible printed, which would have been a costly venture since they were all done by hand. But there's no evidence that either Nicaea or Constantine determined the canon. There had been a fairly standard consensus within the church about what books were to be included. In addition, the earliest canon list that's exactly like the one used today is from decades after Constantine's death. In 337, Constantine fell ill. He soon realized that he was dying and attempted to return to Constantinople. He was only able to make it as far as Nicomedia. At this point, even though Constantine had been a patron of the church, he was not baptized. Some believe that he saw baptism as washing away sin, and he wanted to wait as close to death to do it to ensure his eternal blessing. Certainly, Constantine was not a great guy. He had his son Crispus and his wife Fausta killed. You can see why he might be nervous. But the time was drawing short, and it was time for him to be baptized. He was baptized by Eusebius of Nicomedia, not to be confused with the historian Eusebius that I've often quoted. What is interesting about this is that Eusebius of Nicomedia was an Arian, the very heresy that was the purpose of the Council of Nicaea, and a heresy that was rejected. This was a bit of embarrassment for the church, and a somewhat later legend tried to replace Eusebius with Pope Sylvester I. After his baptism, Constantine died, and he was succeeded by his sons. We'll look at that when we do our summary of the Roman emperors. Thus ends the life of Constantine the Great. For some, this is seen as the hinge of Christian history. For good or ill, the church would never be the same after Constantine. Was he the church's savior or its ultimate undoing? People continue to debate this. I would suggest that he was somewhere in the middle. 
The Roman Empire and the Church were changing with or without Constantine as Emperor. If anything, Constantine probably only hastened what would have happened anyway. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please visit me at historyofchristianitypodcast.com and track me down on Facebook and Twitter. You can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash hopesreason. Even $1 a month, less than a cup of coffee, can make a difference. Thanks for your ongoing support. Thank you, and God bless.